Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, I'm Hub, and boy oh boy do we have an episode for you today. The answer is yes. Yes, objectively, we do have an episode for you today. Whether it's a good episode or not, well, that's going to be for you to decide. This is the first episode that Corey and I are recording remotely. He is in Singapore, and I am not in Singapore, so there's a bit of a time difference, which made things interesting. Interestingly enough, our episode does feature, in fact, some time travel, and I was surprised and dismayed when I talked to Corey the other day when he was still in Japan and found that in Japan, it's tomorrow right now. That's why their robots are so good. They went ahead and built their country in the future. I know it's only a day, but these things add up over time. Nice move, guys. Anyway, we've got a lot of comic to get to, so without any further ado, let's uh do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Josh Bickford. Like the Prince of Abslantis, the son of Satan wants to go topless, so take off that shirt and let's do the synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Josh. Had a little trouble with the meter on that one, but I think it uh, worked out pretty good. Giant Size Defenders, number five. July, 1975. Elar moves in mysterious ways. Written by... Oh boy, whole lot of people. So... Plotted by Steve Gerber, Jerry Conway, Roger Silfer, Len Wein, Chris Claremont, and Scott Edelman. Scripted by Steve Gerber. Drotted by Don Heck. Inkted by Mike Esposito. Lettered and backgrounded by Dave Hunt. Colored by G. Russos. And edited by Len Wein. Wow. With that many people working on a comic book, it's bound to be great. And not disjointed at all. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. Valkyrie. The Incredible Hulk. Nighthawk. And the Guardians of the Galaxy. Featuring Yondu, Charlie 27, Vance Astro, and Martinex. Three dumb jerks are hanging around outside a pawn shop. They are swearing and giggling, like jerks. Also, they are ugly. When the pawn shop owner, an elderly mustachioed gentleman, closes up the shop for the night, the three jerks chase him down an alleyway and pull a knife on him. What a bunch of dumb, ugly jerks. Meanwhile, Val, Hulk, and Doctor Strange are flying over the harbor because Steve's mystical Geiger counter picked up some kind of time travel radiation coming from there, and he reckons the defenders ought to check that shit out. Val and the Hulk aren't really sure what the hell Steve is talking about, but decide to go along anyway, which makes sense seeing as how the Hulk usually doesn't seem to understand what's happening, and Val is still crashing on Steve's couch and doesn't want to make waves. Speaking of making waves, a giant geyser of water erupts from the part of the ocean where Steve had just detected the time travel droppings. A nearby ferry is pelted with perhaps a literal ton of dead fish. Gross. While Val and Hulk leap aboard the ferry and start shoveling dead fish back into the ocean, Steve decides that his mystical powers can best be employed by 
doing pretty much anything other than shoveling dead fish. He goes to examine the source of the disturbance, and is immediately pulled underwater and pummeled by some kind of fish monster who starts telepathically spouting some nonsense about interstellar manifest destiny. You see, Steve? That's what you get for thinking you're too good to shovel dead fish. Jerk. Speaking of jerks, man, I'm really nailing it with the segues in this synopsis. Those three ugly dumb jerks from before are still roughing up that pawn shop owner and are trying to rob him. They're about to stab the beleaguered small business owner when they're interrupted by the arrival of a massive shadowy stranger who says that he doesn't want to interfere, but he can't allow those toughs to stab a guy. The toughs respond by stabbing the pawn shop owner in the tummy before turning their attention to the enormous shadowy stranger. The stranger says enough disparaging shit about primitive, violent 20th century earthlings that it's pretty clear that he is a spaceman from the future. He is huge and super muscly and is wearing a red leather studded bandolier and some bright yellow tights. What's the matter, spaceman? They don't have trench coats and fedoras in the future? After slapping the shit out of the ugly dumb jerks, the spaceman says to himself that while he was supposed to avoid being seen, which is where that trench coat and fedora combo would have really come in handy, just saying, he cannot allow the old man to die, and carries him off to a hospital where hopefully the shitty 20th century earth doctors can save his life. Speaking of shitty 20th century earth doctors, Stephen Strange isn't doing so great. He was knocked out by either the fish monster's physical assault or by his mental one. The captions tell us that Steve's cloak of levitation lifted his unconscious body to the surface of the water. Um... I think maybe he just floated up. I mean, that's kind of how floating works. If the cloak was doing the levitating, then it seems weird that it would just stop lifting when it got to the surface of the water and not go ahead and, you know, levitate him up into the air. Anyway, Val scoops Steve's body out of the ocean. Hulk and Val wonder what is wrong with the waterlogged magician. Well, let's see, guys. He was underwater for a long time, and then eventually floated to the surface, and now he's unconscious. Yeah, could be anything. It's probably magic. Either the fact that Steve may have been drowning never occurs to his teammates, or they are just both so against the idea of giving him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation that they discount the possibility out of hand. Fortunately, Steve eventually recovers enough to start muttering the word, Elar repeatedly. As he does so, Hulk and Val glance up and see the fish monster thing flying towards the city, still mentally broadcasting his message of space mercantilism, and also that he is going to attack New York City, and also also that his name is Elar. Hulk and Val decide that they'd probably better thwart Elar. Meanwhile, billionaire Duel bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, is flying around the woods being bummed out. First, his girlfriend's arm got blown up, which started a chain of events that caused his new superhero buddies, the Defenders, to get into a fight with his old supervillain buddies, the Squadron Sinister. Then his newly one-armed girlfriend left him. Then he found out that the guy running his company for him was secretly using his money to fund a bunch of white supremacist assholes. So, it's been an eventful couple of weeks. Kyle decided that he needed to head upstate and take some time to think stuff over. Then he sees a spaceship crash in the woods, 
and decides that he'd rather check that out instead. Fair enough. A starry-eyed kid who had been hanging out in the butcher shop also saw the spaceship crash. More on him later. Back in New York, just outside the Hudson Tunnel, a couple of tollbooth attendants are hanging out. One of them, Ferdy, pulls out his gun and starts pointing it at the other one, Mickey. Apparently this sort of thing happens with these guys a lot. Ferdy is very proud of how good he is at pointing his gun at people, and says that his predilection for unsafe firearm practices is proof that he shouldn't be stuck in a toll booth, but rather should be out on the streets like a real cop. Um, couple of things, Ferdy. First of all, no. Just no. Second of all, I don't see how a toll booth attendant even qualifies as a fake cop. Unless I'm very much mistaken, they are entirely unrelated professions. That's like saying, I shouldn't be stuck in this ice cream parlor, man, in this scoop. I should be out there on a drafting table, like a real architect. Suddenly, a bunch of screaming starts up in the tunnel behind the two non-police officers. A horde of commuters who have abandoned their vehicle starts streaming from the tunnel's mouth. Ferdy and Mickey investigate and find that the power inside the tunnel has been knocked out and water is starting to leak from the ceiling. Soon the small leak turns into a torrential downpour and hundreds of fish start falling through the tunnel's concrete roof. That's not good. It turns out that old Elar is standing on the top of the tunnel and smashing thousands of fish into the structure like some kind of demented Aquaman, which is to say... Aquaman, like 30% of the time at least. Maybe 40 or 50% in the 90s. Mickey, quite reasonably, flees the scene, but Ferdy appears to be mesmerized by the flow of fishes and just stands there dumbfounded. Fortunately, before Ferdy is flattened by the Fordian fiasco, the defenders show up. Hooray! Like the structural engineering geniuses they are, the Hulk and Valkyrie crumple up an automobile, wad it up into a giant ball, and jam it into the hole in the tunnel's roof. Hooray! Problem solved forever. Back upstate, that starry-eyed kid who was so stoked to see a spaceship crash just got home. He excitedly tells his folks what happened. His dad calls him a liar and threatens to beat him again, then sends him to his room. Shitty. The kid's room is plastered with images of his hero, Captain America. The persecuted pubescent decides that if his asshole dad won't believe him, he'd better go get some proof. He sneaks out of his room and runs off into the woods to investigate the UFO crash he witnessed earlier. Hey, wasn't someone else planning on investigating that crash? Oh yeah, Nighthawk. Relieved to have his introspection interrupted, Kyle soon arrives at the crash site. He finds a superficially damaged but largely intact spaceship that is named, coincidentally, the Captain America. Hmm. Inside the ship are three freedom fighters from the far-flung future, collectively known as the Guardians of the Galaxy. But not the ones from the movies. Mostly. First off the ship is Major Vance Astro. Many years from now, in the distant future of 1988... Vance will become the first man to travel to the stars. And something goes wacky with that and he ends up in the 31st century. Whoopsie. Now he wears a metal suit and has telekinesis. Next is Yondu. He's from Centauri IV, also in the 31st century. They're all from then. 
Yondu is blue and has a red mohawk. He wears a shirt that is comprised entirely of one sleeve, and he has some magic arrows that he can make fly around in different directions when he whistles. Last out is Martinex. Martinex is from Pluto. He is made of silicon crystals and looks like if Iceman was covered in rainbows. He can turn light into bursts of heat or cold, which is pretty handy. The fourth member of the team is the trench coat and fedoraless big fellow we met earlier. His name is Charlie27 and he is from Jupiter and is big and strong and tough. While Kyle is introducing himself to the other guardians, let's check in on Charlie and see how he's doing. Turns out, Charlie is doing not great. After he dropped the old guy off at the hospital, the hospital security tried to ask him a bunch of questions. So Chuck27 went ahead and Kool-Aid manned himself through the hospital wall and ran off into the night. Hooray! Charlie decides that the best way to remain inconspicuous is to try to blend in with a crowd. Despite the fact that Chuck is seven feet tall, seven feet wide, and wearing what appears to be bright red bondage gear, his plan works. Only in New York. The crowd that Charlie 27 is successfully hiding in is coincidentally the very crowd that has gathered to watch the Defenders fight Elar. The Defenders slap the apparently imperialistic fishman around for a bit, but then Elar punches out Val's magic horse Aragorn and throws a bunch of electricity at the Hulk, which it turns out the Hulk hates. Charlie 27 is impressed by both sides. Back in the spaceship in the woods, the other Guardians have filled Kyle in on their identities. It turns out that they sent Charlie 27 off as an advance scout with orders not to be seen or to interfere with anything. Vance and Yondu want to go find their teammate, but the problem is that while Martinex can use the spaceship's transporter to teleport them to where Charlie is, he can't use it to get them back. Kyle offers to give his new buddies a lift home, so Martinex beams the three heroes off. But as soon as they leave, Marty is surprised by the arrival of that one kid from before. Oops. The kid says, oh, wow. And I think that Marty thinks wow is a swear word because he's like, yeah, that's just what I was thinking. It's a nice moment. Anyway, the three teleportees are surprised to find themselves in the middle of Times Square, watching the defenders slug it out with an apparently enraged fishman. Charlie greets his teammates, and Kyle greets his teammates. But before introductions can be made, Elar flies off, and when the defenders turn to confront the guardians, they find that the temporally displaced do-gooders have skedaddled as well. The guardians have gone off to look for the object that Charlie 27 had been seeking in the first place, a super science hat that the evil interstellar Badoon Empire, who has enslaved humanity in the 31st century, uses to mentally program their citizens and turn them into kill-crazy soldiers for the Badoon Empire. Hmm. Chuck takes his pals to the alleyway, where he sort of rescued the old guy. They poke around for a bit, and when they rummage through the old guy's suitcase, they find the evil science hat. Turns out someone must have pawned it. Huh. Wonder how much they got for it. It's got to be a tough item to price. Once the evil science brainwashing hat is revealed, Charlie 27 excitedly jams it onto his head. What. The. Fuck. Dude. The last thing the Earth needs is your giant super strong ass running around conquering shit for the fucking Badoons. Chuck is disappointed to learn that the brainwashing hat is all used up. 
Aw, poor fella. Meanwhile, while Val, Kyle, and the Hulk are off tracking down Elar, Steve has gone back to the part of the ocean where the gang first encountered the fish-flinging fiend. The Sorcerer Supreme turns on his mystical metal detector and eventually is able to dredge up a second Badoon evil brainwash science hat. So, naturally, he jams it onto his head. Just kidding. He doesn't do that. Because whatever else his innumerable faults might be, Stephen Strange is not a total fucking idiot. Charlie. Speaking of total fucking idiots, Charlie and the rest of his team have just joined up with the Defenders and found Elar. Elar is in the middle of Central Park, ferociously attacking a tree. Steve catches up with the gang and tries to use his magic to probe Elar's mind and read the creature's thoughts. Well... Turns out Elar doesn't really have a ton going on in terms of thoughts or a brain. Not unlike a certain Jupiterian I could mention. Steve and the Guardians of the Galaxy compare notes and somehow piece together Elar's origin. Turns out, a little while ago, some Badunian asshole dropped his hat in the ocean. A nest of electric eels started living in it. When the Guardians did some time travel near the hat, the temporal radiation triggered the hat's programming and also interacted with the evil hat circuitry and the electric eel's electricness in a way that turned one of the eels into Elar and also dumped all the evil Badoon propaganda messages into its uncomprehending brain, which it both internalized and began broadcasting telepathically. Wow. That is some grade-A comic book nonsense right there. The gang teams up with the Guardians, and they whoop the crap out of Elar. When their defeated foe is unconscious and defenseless, Val gets out her magic sword and is like, Seems like a shame to have to do this, seeing as how it turns out none of this was Eli's fault after all. But... Guess I better stab this dude in the head. Steve stops her and goes, Actually, Valkyrie, I think I can use my powers to just turn this guy back into a regular old electric eel. And done. You're welcome, everyone. What a heroic and compassionate act I have just performed. Yeah, except the part where it seems like you could have done that at any time. And also the part where Elar is now an electric eel rapidly dehydrating in the middle of Central Park. Damn it, Steve. Everybody heads back to Steve's place for some refreshments and wrap-up exposition. Major Vance Astro explains that his team learned that their foes the Badoon had tried to conquer Earth once before in the 20th century and failed. So, Vance and his buddies figured they'd hop back a thousand years and look for some clues as to how to thwart Badoons. The helmet things were their best lead, but that turned out to be a dead end. Oh well. Now they're all stuck here in our dumb century. Steve says he'll start looking for a way to send them back. Meanwhile, back on the spaceship, that nosy kid is pestering Martinex with a whole bunch of questions, but Marty keeps refusing to answer on account of he doesn't want to mess up the time stream or whatever. I guess you can only reveal your future information to dudes who are incredibly powerful. After all, what could guys like the Defenders possibly do that would affect future events? Anyway, Marty is stonewalling the kid when the kid informs him that due to what he has seen today, he is going to be an astronaut when he grows up, and that his name is Vance Astrovic, but he'll probably shorten his last name to Astro at some point. Oh, snap. 
Well, it's a real nice uncompromised time stream we had going for a second there. So, this story had six different writers working on it, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Hey, I wonder if this is the first time travel paradox story that Chris Claremont ever had a hand in. Historic. And then we get a backup story featuring Nighthawk back when he was a bad guy. Quoth the Nighthawk, nevermore. Reprinted from Daredevil number 62, March 1970. Written by Roy Thomas, drotted by Gene Colan, inked by Sid Shore, lettered by Artie Simek, and edited by Stan Lee. Daredevil's alter ego, lawyer Matt Murdock, received an anonymous tip that two crooks were going to rob a movie theater. This doesn't strike Matt as particularly strange. I guess as a defense lawyer, he gets hot tips about impending crime on a regular basis, so that he can defend the criminals preemptively? Or maybe just avoid going to the movies that night? Anyway, Matt puts on his Daredevil outfit and stakes out the movie theater. For a while, it looks like the tip was a dud, but towards the end of the night, two crooks named Jojo and Weepin' Willie show up and rob the box office at gunpoint. Okay, one, those are some great criminal names, and B, I always suspected that without Casey's steadying influence, Jojo might turn to a life of crime. Sorry. Anyway, Dee Dee intervenes and starts slapping Willie and Jojo around. The crooks don't much care for that and try to hightail it out of there. Our horn-headed hero gives chase using his grappling hook slash billy club thingy, but has a mid-air collision with Nighthawk. It's 1970, so Nighthawk, a.k.a. Kyle Richmond, is still decked out in his squadron sinister era bird-beaked weird eyebrowed duds. Hooray! The belligerent bird enthusiast tells Daredevil that he'll take over the heroing from here on out. That actually works out pretty well for Matt, seeing as the sightless superhero suddenly finds himself feeling pretty woozy and has to sit down for a minute. Hmm... As Daredevil puts his head between his legs and starts taking some deep breaths, Nighthawk punches and kicks the crap out of the box office burgling bunglers. The crowd is gathered around is pretty impressed by Kyle's punching and kicking, and a little less than impressed with Daredevil sitting down and trying not to throw up. As Daredevil heads home to make himself some Theraflu, Nighthawk tells the Crimson Crusader not to worry. The captured criminals will be brought to justice. As soon as the crowd disperses, Willie and Jojo start pleading with Nighthawk for leniency, and Kyle's like, What? You guys are still here? Whatever. Go home or something. I don't give a fuck about arresting people. I just want to make Daredevil look bad at my expense. Go away! Then the bird-beaked billionaire duel laughs maniacally and jumps in his Nighthawk mobile. Okay. When he arrives back at stately Richmond Manor, the arrogant avian enthusiast starts spouting exposition at himself for no apparent reason. Hooray! Turns out that the reason old Hornhead was feeling all groggy is on account of Kyle drugged him. And the reason Kyle drugged Daredevil is because he wants Nighthawk to be the only hero in town. Uh, Kyle? The town in question is New York City. In the Marvel Universe. Did you seriously think Daredevil was the only superhero who lived here? I mean... You fought the Avengers already. Your plan is the equivalent of trying to defeat Brian Dennehy so that you'll be the only actor in Los Angeles. 
That's right. In my metaphor, Daredevil is the equivalent of Brian Dennehy. I stand by that. I mean, I was going to go with Luis Guzman, but then I remembered that he lives in Vermont. Anyway, Kyle figures that once he gets super popular by upstaging the Marvel Universe's Brian Dennehy, he can use that popularity to realize his true goal, seeking political office. Oh, Kyle. An evil, fame-hungry billionaire posing as a populist to seek higher office? Only in comic books. After laughing maniacally at his evil plan, Kyle decides to take a few minutes to say his origin story aloud to himself. You know, like you do. A few months ago, Kyle was a regular old feckless billionaire. He was working in his lab late one night when his eyes beheld an eerie sight. It was a book. And sadly, a book that didn't have a signature Halloween dance. It was an ancient book on alchemy that Kyle had never seen before. So, naturally, he mixed up one of the recipes in it and chug-a-lugged. Immediately after drinking it, the affluent amateur alchemist found that he had gained miraculous and boring powers. When the moon was out, he was now as strong as two strong men. Wow. So he sewed himself up a fancy bird suit and started doing some crimes, and then a blue-faced alien hooked him up with some other evil dudes, the Squadron Sinister, and told them to fight the Avengers, and they did, and it didn't go great. So now he's going to pretend to fight crime so that he can be president. Meanwhile, Daredevil's kind of bummed out that the press likes Nighthawk better than him. He starts to get a little suspicious of the asshole avian aficionado, so he makes a couple of phone calls. Then he heads out to fight some crime and once again bumps into Kyle, who is out pummeling some crooks. Kyle acts like a dick because, well, Kyle's a dick. Daredevil tells him that he can clearly see that Daredevil is no longer needed. The Big Apple may have room for 753 superheroes, but 754 would be ridiculous. It's time he hung up his horns and retired. Nighthawk is elated that his plan is working. He spends the next several nights punching and kicking criminals and becoming a media darling for doing so. About a week or so after Daredevil's supposed retirement, Nighthawk is out crime-punching when he encounters a mustachioed jewel thief. Kyle's about to make the arrest when the suspected stuff-taker demands that he be let go, the way his good pals Willie and Jojo were let go a few nights ago. For some reason, Kyle agrees, but only on the condition that first the jewel thief listened to Kyle deliver a monologue about how the citizens of New York are a bunch of stupid idiots. Fair enough. As soon as Nighthawk is done dressing down the denizens of his fair city, the purported jewel thief makes a stunning revelation. He's no thief, but rather Daredevil, wearing a rubber mask over his regular mask. Also, he was just wearing his whole superhero costume the whole time, and Nighthawk didn't notice. His disguise was the equivalent of wearing a name tag that says, Hello, my name is definitely not Daredevil, and it worked like a charm. Fucking Kyle. Also, Dee Dee recorded Kyle's little speech and played it over a PA system that he set up hanging from a streetlight. Now the four people who were on that city block at that hour of night have heard the truth, and the gig is up for Kyle. No evil presidency for you, asshole. See, once the American people have heard a recording of you saying something offensive, your political career is over for sure. Yeah.
Anyway, Kyle and Daredevil fight. Things aren't going so great for Nighthawk, so he tries to use that drug on Daredevil to make him get queasy again, but no dice. You see... At some point during the last week, Matt Murdock was working in his lab late one night when his eyes beheld an eerie sight, a recipe for the antidote to the drug that was used on him. Damn, with all the labs everyone seems to have, you'd think more people would be discovering monster-themed novelty songs slash dances. Realizing that he can't give his opponent an upset tummy, Kyle runs away. Daredevil chases him, but Kyle escapes into a subway tunnel. The end. Or is it? Nah, it totally is. Is it really, though? Yes. Yes, it is. And thank goodness for that. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Now, you may remember last week, Corey was in a transporter accident and was trapped in a dimension slightly out of phase with our own. But as he is back this week, I assume he has found the solution to the series of riddles and found the magical tuning fork that will return him to our own dimension. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing well, thank you. Yep, tuning fork and etc. recovered, so all good. Nice, nice. Man is the answer. Four Sorry. feet in the morning, and then three feet in the afternoon, and then two feet, uh, I guess, slightly pre-afternoon. Uh, and the third foot's a cane. That's how riddles work. <laughs> I, it's the old man has three feet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why I said the afternoon. Okay, so it goes four feet, two feet, three feet. Yeah, yeah. you know, that's how you got the fork, I assume, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, fucking sphinxes. Never trust a bird lion. No, not as far as you can throw one. Wait, do they have any bird in them? Uh, I just thought they were more like cat creatures. Okay, that makes sense. Anyway, welcome back. Thank you. So, Corey, as you may or may not know, listeners, is currently in Singapore. How is it going over there? It's lovely. It's warm, and there's lots of beautiful buildings. It's a, it's a nice place to visit. Very nice. Yep. I knew a guy from Singapore named Chip one time. Do you know Chip? I haven't run into him, no. Ah, well, if you do, tell him I said hi. <laughs> Will do. Anyway, we read one heck of a long and crazy and bonkers comic book today. We are taking a look at Giant Size Defenders number five. And boy, howdy, there's a lot of comic book in that comic book. I'll say. So normally when we do the Giant Size Defenders things, I have prepared a series of drinks that will accompany it. It's eight o'clock in the morning in Singapore or thereabouts. Am I correct? That is true. So I have had uh, two coffees, a uh, hot chocolate, and a green tea. So I, sh I should be up to speed caffeine-wise here. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, uh, I have prepared myself a drink that is appropriate for each of the two segments. So we're not going full out because I'm kind of drinking alone, but I also am going to have some drinks. So uh, let's start off talking about the Nighthawk story. And to accompany that, I am going to have a shot of Jack Daniels because I am lazy and it was a pretty straightforward story. Sounds good. Intercontinental cheers to you, my friend. Cheers. Whoa, how did we do that? <laughs> it's the magic of radio. Or Indeed. You know, what, whatever this is. Yeah, fancy computer radio. Yeah, computer radio. So, yeah. Nighthawk, what did you think? This is the uh, Daredevil one at the end? Daredevil and Nighthawk yes. one? 
Well, I thought it just kind of confirms my feelings on Kyle Richmond, which is <laughs> that he's that kind of a douche. He's not a person that I like very much. And also, props to Daredevil for the clever way in which he exposed Kyle Richmond's douchebaggery to the general public. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, it is kind of, you see the similarities almost between Nighthawk and Daredevil at this point, at least. They're both super concerned with public image, and like, it, it's the superheroing game is more a matter of ego to kind of both of them. Sure. Like, yeah. I mean, Nighthawk obviously is a little bit worse than Daredevil at it, but they're both just like, well, I don't, I want people to say nice things about me and I'll get a big boost out of it. And Kyle, of course, turns to, you know, actual crime to do that and letting criminals go free and stuff, and Daredevil doesn't, but still kind of similar sides to a coin. Yeah, similar sides to a coin, yet I don't recall Daredevil speaking ill of his fan base, you know. That's true, and that really is the big crime that Nighthawk does. He says, "Ah, the people of New York City are a bunch of sheep. Mm -hmm. And that, man, the people do not like to be called sheep, turns out. No, I I think the one guy actually says, that was Nighthawk calling us all sheep. (laughs) Did you hear that? (laughs) He didn't didn't like it. Nobody likes that. Um, uh, Yeah, it was kind of a fun trap that was laid for Nighthawk, who, I mean, really, all of his villainy is just due to him being lazy. Like, if he had just taken the criminal that he did catch and thwart from doing the crime to jail, instead of just being like, "Eh, I don't feel like it, and the important thing was I showed up Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Who cares what his motivations are as long as he's catching crooks? Like, really, it was just laziness was his only true crime there. I guess, yeah. I mean, you, I if guess, you're looking at the end result. Well, and also kind of, you know, uh, drugging Daredevil probably isn't the nicest thing to do. Nope. Probably a crime. I think canonically, drugging people against their will is a crime. Yeah. So, yeah, shitty job, Kyle. Uh, he also does, in this story, refer to himself as Boy Tycoon which he had done before, and every time he does it, it is creepy and inaccurate. Like, Should be talking referring... about uh, Beast Boy. Well, he's not really a tycoon, but he's a boy with a bunch of money. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and that's the thing. Kyle's not really a tycoon either. He's just a guy with a lot of money, and he's not even a boy. Like, it's creepy because he's referring to himself as a boy when he's, like, around 30, I guess. And it's inaccurate because it's not like he's a business mogul. He's just a guy who inherited a bunch of money. So, bad job all around, Kyle. The art was good. It was nice to see Daredevil being more happy-go-lucky than I think we're used to seeing him. Mm -hmm. This is before he got Frank Millerized and became a dark and brooding hero and was really just kind of like a wacky, wisecracking, Spider-Man-esque type character. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of fun. Yeah, I like Daredevil on this. Yeah, pretty fun. Pretty fun. We do see that at this point, Kyle's powers were moon-based like when the moon was out he became as strong as two people Mm. uh rather than just whenever it was nighttime which did give me the idea that perhaps as an alter ego if he doesn't want to go by nighthawk anymore he could go by were double guy (laughs) by by how's that well because he's like a werewolf except for he doesn't turn into a wolf he just turns into two guys or the equivalent thereof so he's like a were double guy oh i get it strength of two people yeah yeah which again Lame, lame power. Also, his origin story struck me as, I mean, a lot of them are a little bit uncomplicated, but this was particularly lazy in that he says, oh, I was, you know, hanging out in my my laboratory and I found this 
magical book that I didn't remember, and then I just immediately opened it to this wear double guy potion page, and <laughs> yep. there you go. Well, he found out later that he had been influenced by the Grandmaster to do that. But yeah, essentially, I was mostly annoyed by that story because at no point did he start it off by saying, I was working in my lab late one night, which mm-hmm. is exactly what happened. And it, uh, it could have segued into a nice Monster Mash business. So <laughs> big disappointment all around Kyle Richmond. Although I loved seeing his old costume again. Bird nose. Had the bird beak, had the dune eyebrows. I I miss that shit. I wish that shit was back. I do like the goofy eyebrows. Just one other note about the Daredevil backup story. At one point, Daredevil says, if you think that, and then there's a dot, dot, dot. And then on the next page, he says, it's rethinking time. I was like, that is the worst knockoff of its clobbering time ever. It's clobbering time is so much better than it's rethinking time. I was wondering about that. I didn't actually connect it to the clobbering time thing. So thank you. I don't know if that was an intentional connection there. It just, that was what I thought when I saw it, because it was said like it was a catchphrase. The artwork also in that story is fucking rad. It's all by Gene Colan, who went on to do the Tomb of Dracula stuff with our old buddy Marv Wolfman. Mm. And it does have this like almost gothic horror feel to it, which worked really well for a story that didn't have those elements in it. I thought it made a nice juxtaposition there. Yeah, that I like was that cool. art too. Good art. Yep, good art. Well, I think that was lovely. Let me just finish this shot of Jack Daniels and we can move on. Now, let's move on to the main feature of our thing, the Guardians of the Galaxy story. What did you think? I thought this was a lot of fun. Um, I agree. Yeah, there were so many things that happened. The bad guy was so goofy, and I love the origin story of the bad guy. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. What did you think? I thought it was a fucking mess, but it was a fucking mess that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. It, it, It harkened back to almost Silver Age proportions, but man... I think my thoughts can be clarified by the beverage that I'd made myself to accompany this this story. I made myself a Saratoga, which is a pretty traditional beverage that is kind of like a Manhattan, but with equal parts rye and brandy. And then I just added a bunch of extra shit to it that I kind of liked. And it I think that's kind of how this story was written. There were six <laughs> different people plotting the story. And it really does seem like everybody had one or two elements that they just threw in and everybody else was like, I don't know how these connect, but okay, just, yeah, mix them all in there. And then Gerber did the script to it. Fueled by coffee and meatloaf. (laughs) That part was really fun. I'll just actually read the introduction where they discuss that. You won't believe this, but Steve Gerber, Jerry Conway, Roger Silfer, Len Wein, Chris Claremont, and Scott Edelman plotted this tale. Steve scripted it, Don Heck drew it, Mike Esposito inked it, Dave Hunt inked the backgrounds and lettered it. G. Rousos colored it, Len Wein edited it. Coffee and moral support were provided, for a price, by the Lantern Coffee Shop on 53rd Street, and Carla made the meatloaf. Once you've read it, the story, not the meatloaf, you may wonder why. Answer, why not? Yeah, so to my drink, I added some cherry juice and a cherry and some tangerine peel and a little bit of tangerine juice. And it tastes pretty good, but it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Much like uh, this story. 
Sounds delicious. So is it like a, a Manhattan in proportion, like uh, two parts booze to one part vermouth? Yep. Ah. One, one part rye, one part brandy, one part vermouth, and then uh, Angostino bitters. And to garnish it with a lemon peel traditionally, but like I said, I just kind of threw in a bunch of other shit. It's pretty good. I would recommend it. I would actually recommend the modifications I made to it, too. Yeah, my first note on this story is, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. So is this your initial exposure to the original Guardians of the Galaxy? It is, and it's very different from uh, the movie Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, it sure is. If nothing else, it takes place a thousand years in the future. Which brings me to one of my first points. The Guardians of the Galaxy's plan makes no fucking sense. I'm still actually fuzzy on the whole the the whole space time thing got messed with too in this right where like if they yeah. had they hadn't come then they never would have been so it was kind of like they had to come to earth to execute right. this plan so that they would exist Ex- right and i don't know who contributed what elements to the plot but that bit of vance astrovic traveling back in time to inspire himself to become an astronaut so that he becomes vance astro and can travel back in time That strikes me as a very Chris Claremont thing. Mm. So that's one thing that happens. But their initial plan... Okay, so they're fighting a race of evil space aliens called the Badoon. Now, the Badoon are super space jerks, and they've pretty much taken over humanity and enslaved us in the 31st century. Mm -hmm. The Guardians find out that in the 20th century, the Badoons at one point attempted to invade Earth and were thwarted, So they figure, well, let's just travel back there and see how it was done, and then maybe we can do that. That's very generally what the plot was. Okay, yep. But that was a fucking thousand years ago. And also it just turned out that the Silver Surfer beat them up. Um, (laughs) That was how they were thwarted the first time. I was wondering that. Okay. But also that was a thousand years ago. Like, it would be like, okay, let's see. In 1066, longbows are how, are what swayed the battle when when the Normans fought the Saxons. So, longbows, that's how we'll win this war. Like, that's ridiculous. You're basically like, it's like, oh, let's see, defensive trebuchets. Like, it's a thousand fucking years ago, and there's no way that the specifics of that battle are going to be that fucking important or that relevant to what you're doing now. I don't know. Maybe it's like, um... Didn't the recipe for cement get or concrete get lost for a long time? Like the Romans had it and then people lost it and forgot about it and it took them a long time to find it again? Maybe they were looking for the military equivalent of uh, cement. Maybe. Okay, I don't know. I don't know the story of cement. It sounds fascinating though. I've summarized my that's all my knowledge of it and it, oh. and, it and it may be Well, that's pretty good. Was Inaccurate. Was the recipe rediscovered, or was it just like then they reinvented it? I will or did have they to, like um, blow off an old recipe book and like have the dust cloud up and be like, "says here cement." Yes, uh, late one night I was working in my laboratory, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I well actually, done. I don't know the details. I'm sorry. I I think you're right. That's a ridiculous premise to go a thousand years into the past and search of a military secret but even having done that everything that they do doesn't make a ton of sense they send charlie the guy who knows nothing about earth as an advanced scout i guess Mm -hmm. and then 
they just at random after that happened to crash their spaceship. Like, so they teleported him to the surface to look for a magic hat that somebody had pawned at one point. Science hat. Uh, a magic space science hat. Yeah. Now, the space science hat, he believes, is one that is like, and, and it is one that programs Badoon warriors and does all their training. Mm-hmm. And once he finds what he thinks the hat is, he just jams it on his head. If that, And he's disappointed that, like, oh, it doesn't have any information. If it did have information, wouldn't he just turn into a way more powerful version of what Elar was? Yeah, it seems like a terrible idea. And while we're on the subject, can, can, we, can we talk about what a... I'm on the fence if I think Elar is a, a super lazy name or a super awesome name. For... It's kind of both. If I ever end up on another planet, I am going to insist that We've been over this before. I am a human man from Earth. I cannot stress that enough. I would definitely go by the name Humano. It sounds like a insurance company or something. Uh, yeah, but it inspires confidence, like a superhero <laughs> name should. I don't yeah, know. Elar. you might need to put an R on the end of it, Humanor. Oh, or, or does that make too. you evil if you do that? Uh, it might. It also, I think, could be confusing because it would mean human or something else. And again, Corey, I just want to drive this home. I am a human man from Earth. Ah, uh, not a human or? No, no, no. Possibly a human and. <laughs> but hum- definitely humando. human. <laughs> humando sounds like commando. That'd be. Yeah, that's pretty good. Tough. Humando. Humando is pretty good. All right. Yeah. What would, your, what would your what would your alien superhero crime fighting name be? Oh wow! I'd, I'm gonna need to give that a little little thought and get back to you. You could be Man Man. <laughs> oh, that sounds that half sounds... man, half man, all man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like half of Kyle Richmond. I don't want to be that. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> How about like Earth? The other guy. Oh, no, okay, that's pretty lame too. Yeah, Earth. You could just be Earthy earthy yeah i like to wear uh earth tones, earth tones. yeah sure down That'd to pretty earth. good yep a lot of uh avocado and mustard outfits oh that's the, the color more like 70s the man yeah that was when earth tones were the biggest man okay okay like browns and greens browns greens mustards you know okay cool earthy it is earthy and humando <laughs> <laughs> what a duo So, a couple other things about the Guardians of the Galaxy's plan. They sent Charlie 27, maybe not their most conspicuous member, but also not their least conspicuous member, to go and look for the hat, the magic space science hat. And they gave him strict instructions not to talk to anybody or let himself be seen because they don't want to fuck with the time stream. That being said, as soon as they encounter anyone who is affiliated with the Defenders, they immediately explain everything to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the Defenders, I guess, they wait until the end, but that's just more because they're busy, not from a secrecy standpoint. But, like, Kyle discovers their ship, and they're all just like, oh, well, you're dressed as a bird, so I guess you're trustworthy. Here's the deal. People with fantastic powers, like Doctor Strange and the Hulk, are the people that are most likely to affect the time stream. Those should be the last people you reveal yourself to. And Charlie also does end up revealing his presence to just about everybody he runs in contact with. It's berserk. Yeah, yeah, the plan doesn't go according to plan at all. No. 
Well, in part because Charlie 27, this is a trope we've run up uh, against in the Teen Titans, certainly, with the old Russian Starfire dude. I mean, he wasn't old, but uh, he came from longer ago, I guess. But you are sent on this super secret covert mission, but with no cover story whatsoever. So I don't think people would just see him and assume that he was from the future unless he told them. I don't think if you saw a guy is like, that guy's way bigger than most people are. Sir, are you from a thousand years in the future? Or just from Jupiter. <laughs> yeah. Well, his being from Jupiter does make some sense in terms of not just his uh, his bone density and Jupiter having a higher gravitational pull means you would need more muscles, um, but also in the sense that it seems as though he specifically may have gone there at some point to get more stupider. Well, he doesn't seem stupid to me. And wait, why is <laughs> so? Anybody who wants to go to a giant, a gas giant, is stupid? No, no, no. There's just that old rhyme. Oh, Jupiter, uh, Jupiter, I got believe, it. Yeah, yeah. Boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. Somebody goes to Mars to get candy bars. Uh, you weren't familiar with that? Uh, it's maybe in the distant, distant past, but it's a little fuzzy. Well, I but, think that Charlie Twenty Seven is pretty stupid. I think that he's he's great. I, th- I also think that he's great, but just everything that he does doesn't make any goddamn sense, and he's the worst spy, and I like that he saved the old man and everything, but then just, like, dropping him off, having his story corroborated, and then just deciding to leave by smashing open the side of the hospital and running. Well, they tried to ask him questions, and he's like, no, I can't answer those. That violates <laughs> That's the rules plan. of my, my thing. <laughs> And way to appear inconspicuous and not disturb the time stream. Hey, those cops were being jerks, too. They were, like, shooting at him. Okay, let's talk about some jerk cops. Or jerks who think they're cops? Oh, what the fuck was up with those toll booth dudes? Dude, one, the blonde dude was fine. It was just uh, uh, Ferdy. Ferdy, Ferdy Flynn, man of action, <laughs> who was a total total jerk. What the fuck was up with that? Are they? Our toll booth operators was he? He's like, ah, I should be out there fighting crime like a real cop. Are toll booth collectors a variation of cop? I think not. Like, I didn't think so either. But he's wearing a cop uniform and he has a gun that he just starts pointing at his partner and being like, eh, "See, I'm pretty good with this thing." All he's doing is pointing it and waving it wildly. That is not being good with it. That is the opposite. It's very irresponsible, and it made his partner very uncomfortable is yeah the guy doesn't like having a gun pointed in his face that's weird Uh, yeah weird if you don't like having a gun pointed at your face don't become a toll booth collector (laughs) no the other guy was fine but uh yeah yeah you're right right. it was was just ferdy real piece of shit i was kind of hoping he would get done in by the uh the reign of fish (laughs) instead of just being stupefied by so so (laughs) many fish so many fish (laughs) Corey, in his defense, that was a lot of fish. It was enough fish to smash a hole in a concrete tunnel. That's a lot of fish. But as as Ferdy points out, fish. But fish don't smash tunnels. Fish can't smash anything. Whales can, but these are just fish. Regular fish. How can I shoot at fish? (laughs) Yeah. Deep, man. (laughs) Yeah, that's some, that's some good dialogue. Boy, there is a lot of shit talk of fish in this issue. <laughs> a lot of needless deaths of of fish in this issue. Yeah, man, Elar 
Elar does in a bunch of fish and then just starts, like, his go-to, at least initially, is just flinging dead fish around. I love Elar. I think he's my favorite bad guy so far. He just <laughs> does nothing but, like, throw fish around and insult people. <laughs> like, that's his whole deal. Well, he, al- he also fights trees. Yeah, just anything in front of him, really. And well insulting yeah. it. <laughs> it's like, you know, stupid <laughs> earthling. I'm going to smash you so bad. He also, and I'm wondering if this is the first time the phrase has been used. I mean, it's all all of his dialogue is just him telepathically mimicking the Badunian like programming. But mm-hmm. he uses the phrase, we are masters of the universe. Is that the first time that phrase gets used? Let's see. This is 1970. and No, this the... is 75. 75. Oh, okay. Uh... The reprint is from 1970. Like, it's possible that it's a literary reference from something before that I was unfamiliar with, but hearing that phrase, like, just totally struck me, and it's like, oh, like He-Man, huh. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if this is where the He-Man people got the phrase from. Ah, uh, yes, it could be. From Elar seems like he would totally be a, a Masters of the Universe bad guy. He totally does. Yep. Like Grizzlore. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Elar's origin. Because my notes say mostly TMNT gone horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, so a yeah. uh, bunch of baby eels got nested in one of those magic space science hats. Right. Mm-hmm. And were just basically absorbing um, propaganda hate speech from the bad guys. And there you go. So why aren't No, there... no, because also the the time travel triggered some radiation that also super evolved the eel because otherwise it would just be a bunch of like brainwashed eels like electric eels but then the radiation triggered the thing and made him mutate into this humanoid super evolved being and that was like the time travel radiation that dr strange sensed that they were all trying to seek out at the beginning of the story. So it's a byproduct of the Guardians of the Galaxy doing their thing. But the reason I had the TMNT thing, I guess technically they're more like Master Splinter gone wrong because like, yeah, they're just like innocent being, gets caught up in some kind of radioactive nonsense, evolves into a humanoid form, and is given this training tool and told this is what you are now. And Mm -hmm. I mean, best case scenario, it would have been some like, ninjutsu training books which i think is how master splinter did it also he had when he was just a regular rat been in a cage and kind of watching the dude who got killed by shredder it's been a while since i've read that but like essentially it's the same origin story as the teenage mutant ninja turtles only elar things do not end up so nice for no and also what happened to all his eel siblings like there was a whole bunch of them in, in that helmet right yeah, it was a nest of them. Maybe they evolved collectively into one identity. I hope so. Because otherwise, they probably just got flung at some dudes. There could be like more. with all of the other dead fish. Yeah, there could be more Elars out there, too. There could be, like, three other Elars that all have different colored headbands. <laughs> they love pizza. Yeah, that, They love it so much. Mm-hmm. But with crazy toppings you've never even heard of. What? So that's what happened to one of the Badoons, like, space program helmets. One of them, though, ended up, as we talked about earlier, in the possession of somebody who I guess really needed 20 bucks, so sold it to a pawn shop? Yeah, and how did this person come across this item? 
I don't know. My guess is that they were working in their lab late one night. <laughs> That's how anybody in the Marvel Universe or anywhere discovers anything. Yeah, I don't know. Just like uh, they were they were in a archaeological dig or they had a metal detector or um, it was a family heirloom. No, because it hadn't been around for that long. I bet pawn shops in the Marvel Universe are filled with all kinds of weird, like, alien shit. I bet you're right. Yeah, because that's just a random, like, one-off Silver Surfer fight from a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And so, like, yeah, I guess it's like, well, if I got this helmet. I'll go get 20 bucks, then go get something to eat. All right. Yeah. And the pawn shop guy was like, this is a pretty good helmet. I'm going to take it home with me. Not leave it in the pawn shop. I'll put it in my suitcase. It is never explained why he had it in his suitcase or what that dude's deal was other than getting stabbed by three of the dumbest thugs ever. And ugly. Don't forget ugly. Oh, man. Ugly in thought, in deed, and in face. But one of them does tell a pretty good joke. Uh, I forget. He says a curse word and the other three laugh. <laughs> that's right that's right which cursed word do you think he said i was thinking about that like at first i was just like picture of going like hey guys balls <laughs> but probably it was hey you guys fuck like, yeah yeah good one buddy <laughs> what curse word do you think they were saying i don't know because i was imagining them being more kind of like childlike like him just saying poop but that's not really a curse word. <laughs> that's not really a curse word. Uh, maybe ass. Yeah. <laughs> ass. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> that made me laugh. Oh, geez. Now but I gotta go stab, stab an old guy. <laughs> Take his helmet. Yep, that's how it works. <laughs> oh, shit. Those are the rules, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go through the Guardians of the Galaxy. There's Charlie 27, who's a big dude who basically looks like juggernaut not wearing a helmet more or less correct there's martinex who is from pluto and has magic pluto powers seems like he can he's like real good at science or something he basically looks like a cross between crazy quilt and Iceman. it's like a tiffany like he's yeah he's just made out of prisms sort of he's from pluto Then we have Yondu, who is probably the one that the most people are familiar with through the movies. He's the only one of the Guardians of the Galaxy that was in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And then there are cameos by most of the other ones in the most recent one. It was weird for me to see him. I had forgotten that he used to fire his arrow from a bow. But like, if he can make it move all around by whistling, why doesn't he just start whistling to begin with? I had the same thought. I thought they did. Seems like an odd choice. Yep. But he was pretty cool looking. I like his weird outfit that just has like his whole shirt is just one arm. I like how in the 70s, anybody who isn't white doesn't get a shirt. So like, I guess blue counts. Um, (laughs) And he just like, they found rather than just give him the deep V that most black heroes seem to get at the time, or like the black Goliath look where he just has a big square cut out of his abdomen. Mm -hmm. uh, They decided to just give him one sleeve, which... Is a weird, like, space barbarian look, but I kind of dug it. Maybe it's related to his archery. It's like an arm protector. Oh, right, right. No, I get that. Or, like, the rest of the shirt would get in the way of him drawing his bowstring. Could be. 
that's probably it. You're right. It makes perfect sense. It's a perfectly reasonable outfit. Um, <laughs> it actually kind of reminded me of some of the outfits you'll see in Kill Raven. So I think it might just be typical space future barbarian look. Although mm-hmm. Kill Raven takes place in the far flung future of the year 2010. Oh, no. <laughs> Those Martians really fucked us over bad, man. Dang. Yeah, um, he's got good uh, good hair, too. He does have good hair. Yeah, and he's he doesn't actually say anything in the issue, so it's a little hard to comment on his deal in this one. He, he definitely says, gets more uh, personality in the later issues, but... Oh, did he say something? He says, by the three sons. Oh, okay. My bad. That's some, that's some good, uh, good, <laughs> good Alpha Century 4 talk. Yep, sons with a U. <laughs> yeah, okay. So it's not like a by my whole dad situation. Right. And then we get Vance Astro, who we learn in this issue, changed his name at Space Ellis Island from Vance Astrovic. Yep. What do you think of Vance Astro? I don't know. I think he's probably got some issues left over from what a jerk his dad is. Yeah, man. You got no idea. That guy's. This is his dad's first appearance, I'm pretty sure. I think this is the first appearance of Vance Astrovic as a kid. And so this is the first inception of the whole, like, I inspired myself to grow up to be the person that I met when I was a kid type of paradox thing. But his dad being an abusive asshole is very much a part of his story and much more so in later years. Hmm. Vance Astrovic ends up uh, growing up to be a teenage superhero called Marvel Boy because he's not very imaginative. Hmm. And his powers where he has telekinesis powers. And he ends up killing his dad in self-defense. His dad was abusive to him his entire life, and I think his dad was abusing his mom, too, and was about to abuse him. And he killed his dad and actually went to jail for it. Whoa. Um, And then got out later and served with the Avengers and shit and changed his name to Justice. But, like, that is a big part of Vance Astrovic's story, is his dad being a real piece of shit. Uh, Obviously more so than he is here, but you definitely see the seeds of that story that ended up coming out in like the mid-90s, I think, when he was part of the New Warriors. But yeah, some some deep-seated shit. Dang, I'll say. Yeah, and then he grows up to... I think in the 90s when they did a reboot of the Guardians of the Galaxy, they also took away his sleeves and gave him a mullet. And uh, (laughs) that was also pretty cool. Wow. That sounds like unusually dark uh, subject matter. Yeah. Do comics deal with patricide and abuse very much other than that? Not very much. I mean, it definitely, it is an outlier. Uh, It's, especially for mainstream, like, these comics were definitely part of the mainstream Marvel universe. It wasn't like it was like whatever their equivalent of a Vertigo offshoot would be. I I guess that would be in Marvel. It would be the max imprint of Marvel comics. But uh, yeah, at this time, that was just like regular stuff aimed at teenagers. And yeah, it was a little bit dark. It's definitely an outlier, but they did deal with a a bunch more stuff like that at the time. I remember it actually being a pretty well done storyline. I was a big New Warriors fan in the uh, in the early 90s. It was nice for me to get to see the where Vance Astrovic came from. Mm -hmm. Although I don't think you should change his name. I, I like Astrovic. That's a pretty cool last name. Yeah, well. Maybe it was part of the dad stuff also. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I would totally want to change my name if that was my dad. Mm-hmm. There are also a couple of like weird one-off things that happen in the background. 
we saw that there was a different I think it was Dave Hunt was the guy who inked the backgrounds and we saw a couple of issues ago that there was that graffiti on the wall that said John V is big right I got a number of emails and I'd forgotten the gentleman's name who they were referring to there was a guy who worked at Marvel named John Verput and owner of the butcher shop Verputin's Meat Market. Mm -hmm. So putting together the John V is big and Verputin's Meats. um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm just going to leave that there. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, John Verputin had a bit of a reputation at Marvel. (laughs) (laughs) But my favorite bit of weird background information was there was a movie marquee that I was trying to figure out what it said. Because it really looked like it said squirrel polish. <laughs> squirrel polish. What did did you... It's I'd... page 26. I can't figure out what else it would be. Uh, squire something Polish, maybe? But I think it's squirrel polish. I don't know why anybody would want to see that. Well, you like your squirrels being all dull and musty? <laughs> I, I don't... I don't know how to answer that. Um, <laughs> exactly. That's because you need to get some new squirrel polish, Corey. Oh, I see. Verportant squirrel polish. <laughs> if you're tired of your squirrels being all dull and musty and embarrassed when you have company come over, get yourself some Verportant squirrel polish for like... all your squirrel polishing needs. <laughs> I think you're right, actually. I'm looking at it and I don't know what else it would say. It says scroll polish, and I want to see the movie about it. It's like the the whole origin story of the how it came to be and everything. Yeah, I have so much to learn. It's new yeah, concept, pretty man. great stuff. Heavy, yeah. Got to get in on the ground floor to scroll polish stuff. I'm wondering why it is that the ship, the Guardians of the Galaxy ship, said Captain America on it. Ah. Did you forget who Vance Astrovic's idol was, who you see papered all over his room? Uh, no. That's Captain yes, America. Yes, Captain America. So he named right. the ship and then the he's Captain the captain America. of the spaceship, so he names it the Captain America, I'm pretty sure. Ah, uh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I, th- I think that was what they were getting at there. But yeah, I saw that too. That There was all of this weird, like, in-comic, like, advertising for other Marvel comic stuff. Like, you see that Vance Astrovic totally idolizes Captain America and has pictures of him all over his wall. You also see he has in his room a book by Stan Lee about Marvel Comics origins, Mm -hmm. which I think is a book that had just come out at that time. But it is always weird to me when they throw in the touches that Marvel Comics exist within the Marvel Comics universe. I mean, it's not as much of a mindfuck as the Vance Astrovic time loop conundrum, but like that stuff does always throw me for a loop Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yep. Like, do they know how weird all their shit is then? Who can say? Nobody knows. It's a mystery. Yeah. Like life. Like squirrel polish. <laughs> squirrel polish. I, I, once I figured it out, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, you want some nice shiny squirrels. Yeah, yeah. Who wouldn't? Are you ready to move on to the minutia? Sure. Let's do that. Rick, would you like to sing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what do you want to hit up first? 
Ah, oh, man. Let's take it to the sound effects arena. Okay, there were a lot of sound effects to choose from. That Both stories were very sound effect rich environments. There were a couple that definitely stood out to me. And one of them, I think, mostly hinged on the panel that it was in. What was your favorite sound effect? As you said, there were quite a lot to choose from, but I got to go with the one that initiated the, the most chuckle from me, which, okay. again, falls into this uh, the category that, that we've created of uh, uh, fuddism. <laughs> and, is it flash again? Uh, it is another flash. <laughs> the, the, oh, just a flash in the pan, Corey. Oh, it's a, a furious uh, blast of uh, Elar's en- electric energy on page uh-huh. 26. And it, yep, it makes a big flash. Flash. I had one that was from the backup story, and it was on page 59. It's Nighthawk running into Daredevil. And it's predicated, the reason that I found it so amusing was because of Nighthawk's outfit, which has the big bird beak on it. And the noise that it makes when he runs into somebody is, Bark! (laughs) I missed that. So yeah, it's B-O-K, and it's just that it's Nighthawk with his bird beak, and when he hits somebody, he goes, Bark! Uh, That was my main one. One of the backups that I had just because, like, wait, how does that make that noise is the pawn shop owner getting stabbed in the tummy makes the noise, Thut? T-H-U-T. And I couldn't quite figure that one out. Oh, that's a bad sounding noise, though, for getting stabbed. Yeah, it's it's not good. I was surprised he made it to the hospital. Yeah. Um, yeah but the like other a... one that I liked a lot is also from the uh, Nighthawk story. And it's Krakow. And it's just a upside down kick, handstand kick that Nighthawk's doing. That was but, an impressive kick. Yeah, Krakow's a good noise. Uh, reminds me of Jane Krakowski. So pretty good. It's all his hardcore polo and acrobatic training. <laughs> Yep, that's how you become a superhero. Yep, gotta train lots of polo. I wonder if... Oh, that's right, because we do get that he tries to ride horses again, and he specifically tries to ride Aragorn, and Aragorn kicks his butt. I forgot mm-hmm. about that. That makes me happy. Yeah, yeah, you got it coming. Good job, Aragorn. Oh, man, I felt so bad when Elar attacked Aragorn for no reason. I know, that horse was just like, what is happening? He's like, what the fuck, dude? Not, not cool. No, not cool at all. Sartorially speaking, a lot of fashion going on in this issue. What fashion would you like to comment on? Well, I think the costume or the appearance that stood out the most for me, I think, would have to be um, Martinex. Yeah. I think probably a pain to draw and uh, just nicely rendered and it's a cool look. Yeah, man made out of crystal and then just like, seemed like they just kind of stuck random color swatches all over him, which had a, had a neat effect. I, I liked that. We've talked about a couple of them before. We talked about Yondu's outfit a little bit. I thought that was pretty dope. I liked Charlie 27's weird bandoliers and yellow pants uh, outfit. We talked a little bit about Nighthawk's wonderful old costume with the bird beak and the dune eyebrows and the bird with super long arms that turns into gloves. But I think my favorite outfits are from a couple of minor characters who are real ugly jerks. Uh, the outfits that the thugs are wearing. One of them's wearing pretty standard, like, blue jeans, leather jacket, thug attire. Mm-hmm. One of them's wearing a bright yellow turtleneck. Mm-hmm. And one of them, who I gotta believe is gonna turn out to be a supervillain one of these days, is wearing green plaid pants and a bright purple jacket. And, uh, yep. 
It's a really striking look and not necessarily the way you're going to dress if you're trying to not arouse suspicion. That's definitely bad guy getting, colors. Yeah, getting back to those thugs for a second. I talked about how they stabbed the pawn shop owner in the stomach. They do that after they see that Charlie 27 is their witness. And they say because there's a witness, they have no, no choice but to kill that dude. And that doesn't make any goddamn sense. Like, either way, that dude has seen them, whether somebody else sees them or not. I think they're just trying to minimize their risk. So they got two witnesses. Let's get rid of one of them. Yeah, but I mean, if they had one witness, wouldn't they want to get rid of that one witness? And then that would eliminate their risk entirely. Yeah, but the guy was big and they were scared. So they killed the guy that was (laughs) closest to them. (laughs) And then they ran away, Uh, as any sensible criminal would do. I mean... I appreciate their wonderful sense of humor, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) but I do not like those thugs. Corey. What? Ass. Good one. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I I got another fashion choice of just a background guy, but I thought it was a pretty good look. Is it a green plaid jacket? Yes, it is. Page 34, mustache guy. Page 34. Yeah. (laughs) it's the jacket's good without the mustache it's not complete and that guy has like a crazy raleigh fingers mustache and a green plaid jacket and he would fit right in in portland these days yep nice uh black shirt with some collars some lapels yeah yeah i had that one down as well it's uh it's a good look i like him because he doesn't stab any old guys in the tummy he just dresses cool Mm -hmm. yep nice work buddy Mm -hmm. good job mustache man Who just had to be a sucker in this issue? What character acted outside of their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthered the plot? Uh, Who you got? This one was a little tough for me to come up with. Yeah. None really jumped out at me. So my answer doesn't satisfy the furthering the plot requirement. But what I got was, um, so at the end, when Elar is is defeated but not dead, and Valkyrie's like, ah, shit, now I got to do like i had to do with the rat like i gotta put this thing out of its misery and kill it dr strange is like no and comes in and does the spell that turns it back into an eel he's like now we have to bring this little guy back to the ocean and yeah i just didn't get why he wasn't just like yeah stab that thing i was i had the opposite side of that i had val for being a little stab happy <laughs> oh like, really yeah it's i know she killed that rat but the rat was an eminent danger when like it was about like there's a rabid rat that was going to kill a kid. And it was also a rabid rat. Elar is unconscious. He's not currently a threat. She's like, well, he'll be a threat when he gets better. So get out my magic sword. And she's about to run him through. And that just, I was like, that doesn't seem super Val to me. I thought the Steve thing was weird because he's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And he turns it back into a regular old eel. First of all, who gives a shit if you kill an eel? I guess that's my own personal take on it. I guess electric eels are pretty cool. Also, it's in the middle of Central Park. They didn't seem to take any specific actions to get it back to the ocean. He just said, well, we better take this back to the ocean. It is a sea creature that is then on land in the middle of Central Park. I thought maybe Steve was just being like, whoa, 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 Val, Val, this thing fucked with us for a while. Let's not give it a clean death. (laughs) Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's just going to suffocate to death. And it looks like it's actually dead already. Like he's holding it and it's just all drooping over his glove. Yeah. There are so many dead fish in this story. There's too many. I agree. Too many dead fish. Hulk Hulk did not like it. (laughs) Stupid fish. I love the Hulk so much. (laughs) Okay, let's get on to to best words. 
Okay. Because some of the dead fish talk comes up in that. What did you think were the best words? Pretty much all of Ilara's trash talk through the the whole issue cracked me up. But um, especially on, when he's attacking the tree, when he's talking shit to the tree. But uh, the one that I think stood out the most to me was on page thirty nine, and it's when he's talking shit to Nighthawk, and he says to Nighthawk, "Terran filth, slime of the galaxy, star droppings, die!" Like <laughs> that's a lot of good insults all wrapped up in one. one yeah, if I were not a human man from Earth, I would totally use those insults on these uh, human fools that are surrounding me constantly. Uh, yeah. Of which I am one. Star droppings, die. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good, man. Yeah, so for my best words, gosh, we've definitely touched on it before, but the the, the description of the thugs on page one, the setting, a seamy, litter-strewn street on Manhattan's Lower East Side, the situation, Three of the neighborhood's less affable denizens watch as as elderly Milton Childs closes his pawn shop for the night. They smile, this trio of toughs. One of them mutters a cuss word, and the others snicker as if he's displayed genuine wit. Yeah, I, I loved that. We already talked about that a little bit. I love most of the things that the Hulk says in this. I love the interchange between him and Steve, where Steve's like, Temporal displacement vibrations, Hulk, a disturbance in the flow of time, and we must locate the source of the disruption. And Hulk's response is, huh? Why? Sounds dumb to Hulk. Yep. <laughs> and Val agrees with him. She's like, yes, Steve, that does sound dumb. I don't get it either. Um, my favorite two Hulk dialogue moments are one where, so Hulk has to fight fish? Still sounds stupid to Hulk. And then he just starts slapping dead fish and yelling, get back into water, dumb fish. Yeah, yeah. That was one of my favorite Hulk moments in the whole story. Just slapping dead fish and yelling, get back into water, dumb fish. And also, when Elar is fighting the tree, the Hulk sees him fighting the tree. And I had forgotten. I was actually going to use this as one of my gotta be a sucker moments because Hulk says, Elar is crazy. Tree can't fight. Now, Hulk, you have fought trees in the past. Oh, good point. In that Space Yeti story, you fought a whole bunch of trees and acted really hurt and confused that the trees were attacking you, but you smashed the shit out of trees. So, Hulk, being a little hypocritical there. Yeah, yeah. In his defense, I think he had like hit his head or something on the tree and thought he was being attacked. Or wait, no, he was being attacked by the no, trees. No, he really was being attacked by trees, but he was fighting the trees and doing a pretty damn good job of it. That's true, I, I gotta say, honestly, a better job than Elar did. Yeah, yeah, but those those were my favorite words in the issue, and they were great, and the Hulk was just so charming throughout this issue. What was your favorite panel? It's really a toss-up. Um, the first one we already talked about, which is which is Hulk saying, get back in water, dumb fish, on page seven, and just slapping fish. <laughs> which, that was really fun. It just cracked me up. Uh, the other one was kind of hidden away a little bit, and it's on page 37, and I called it uh, Very Metal Stephen Strange, and it's one where he's casting a, a spell on, on Elar, but he's doing the, the, the devil horns and saying, behold! And uh, it was just... <laughs> It just looked very cool, very metal. That is rad. Yeah. Nearly exhausted, perhaps, Emerald One, but not demented yet. Behold! And then it's just like you just hear the guitars come in. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, that's pretty rad, man. I think my favorite is from the uh, Daredevil story, and it's on page 60, and there's a Nighthawk montage. It's kind of, if Nighthawk was the protagonist of the story, this would be his 1980s everything's going great montage. Uh, And it's just kind of him fighting crime and getting accolades. uh, And then that's all superimposed over an image of his head and an image of Daredevil's head. And it's just really cool looking. Yeah, that is a a good one. He looks very... That that is maybe my favorite moment in every 80s movie is the everything's going great montage. The like the Ghostbusters one where they're busting all the ghosts. There's one in the movie called Baby Boom in which I think she's just making a ton of jelly and selling it or something. Um, but uh, but most movies in the 80s had at least one point where it's just like, started a new business and everything's going great. Look at all of this product. Look at all of this money. Mm. And that's kind of Nighthawk's version of that for this story. So I, I enjoyed that. And also it's the, it's the Gene Colan art and uh, it just really dark and ominous and gothic looking and dope as hell indeed good stuff well i think that does bring us to the superlatives in this issue who did you have as being the worst offender worst offender gosh i feel like it's it's kind of lame that i keep defaulting to this but i'm gonna go back to uh to nighthawk he just sort of flies around being bummed out and doesn't really accomplish anything yeah, I, I see where you're going with that, uh, specifically in that Nighthawk ended issue 25 by saying, I really just need to go work out my own shit uh, and deal with being responsible for all of these horrible crimes that were committed under my watch as CEO of Richmond Enterprises. I really need to think about things and get my shit together. And then in this issue, it's he's flying around and thinking about shit, and he's like, I could think about this shit, or I could do the opposite of that and do random other shit and distract myself from that shit. I'll do that instead. Uh, And that, yeah, explicitly he decides to be distracted from the things that he had decided he wanted to think about. So I think that is a fair choice. In that, like, he's flying around having that, like, oh, I should be so bummed out, but I don't want to deal with it. And then that spacecraft crashes. And then he's like, oh, poor me. Why does everything crash around me? Now I have to go investigate. Like, it's like, come on, man. (laughs) It really is all about him always. Yeah. So as I said, I think that is a fair choice. I decided to go with, it started off being a four-way tie for the Guardians of the Galaxy just because their plan made no goddamn sense at all. But I, I think that much like in the last story, leadership has to take extra responsibility for the failure of the group. So I decided to go with Vance Astrovic because uh, he's the leader of this motley crew of space people that will eventually be known as the Guardians of the Galaxy, but in the present have no name yet. And they just, their plan is just such crazy baloney garbage. Really, from soup to nuts, none of it makes a goddamn lick of sense. They created Elar with their irresponsible time travel. They decided to go back to a time to try to uncover information. There was a time when Vance was alive and could have just said like, yeah, no, I mean, that's certainly not public knowledge that what happened. So it wasn't much of an invasion that happened at that point that they wanted to go a thousand years previous to get strategy guides to learn about fucking the equivalent of like throwing rocks at these aliens. Charlie 27's 
sending him as your subterfuge agent without giving him any cover story, having him jam the magic space hat on his head to see if it is filled with murderous thoughts. (laughs) Just, yeah, really. Soup to nuts. The Guardians of the Galaxy did a terrible, terrible job. And as their leader, I think Vance is culpable. So he was my choice. Fair. Conversely, who did you have as the best defender? Well, <laughs> you you may not agree with this, but I really like that Charlie 27 has such a strong moral code that he essentially, despite like really wanting to follow orders, being a good soldier and all, he, he had to save that old dude and uh, <laughs> took him to the hospital. He did a dumb job, though. And, uh, you know, took him, found him, took him to the hospital. Again, his moral code was so strong that he was like, I told you guys the truth and you still want to ask me questions. Fuck all this and smashed his way out. You know, he's really sticking to his guns. And then uh, also he, you know, jumping on uh, the Steve Strange hypothesis, realized that the reason why Elar is what Elar is, is all because he'd been absorbing that uh, Badoon uh, war propaganda. So uh-huh. that, that was a good connection. So I'm going to go with uh, Charlie 27. Okay. I think Charlie 27 did a pretty bad job. I think he also kind of got that old guy stabbed. I don't really understand the thug's reasoning, but it seemed like they weren't going to kill that guy. And then Charlie showed up. And so then they did kill the guy. That's not his fault. And yeah. Eh, a little bit. But was, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty weak choice. Who's Who was your uh, favorite? Oh, I went with the Hulk because he slapped a lot of dead fish. <laughs> yeah, that was I was gonna do that, but I I feel like I just like Hulk does something like cute or cool every time. So he like, really does. I I, it's an easy choice, but man, he's just the best. I was trying to branch out, but uh, yeah, I I understand the I understand the impulse, and I also like Charlie Twenty Seven, but I think he did a bad job. Yeah. He, yeah, I mean, it's tough to follow orders, though. They're like, go find stuff out, but don't stand out. And he's like, man, I'm like eight feet tall and 500 pounds. How can I not? Yeah, he was a poor choice. Like, that really does, I think, as I said before, fall on leadership. Like, that's not really how you do that thing. Right. But, uh, yeah, I just, the hook slapped so many dead fish in this issue. He really did. Put them right back uh, in the water where they belong. Yep. Great job. Well, Corey, this next segment has been a long time coming. Oh, my God. (laughs) And so (laughs) we get to choose from a couple of different dates on this one, because the the main story was published in July of 1975, but the reprint is from March of 1970. So in either of those times, what had been a long time coming? Yes, I'm glad that March 1970 was one of those dates, because that was what I had chosen. And actually, the senseless death of all those fish, you know, it's it, Wong is, is well aware of the exploits of the, the defenders and what's been going on in all of the stories. And it really kind of dovetailed with some work that, that he had been doing. Um, I think in the, in the past, uh, we've gone over some of his, his interest in ecology and uh, animal rights and, and these sorts of things with the, you know, saving the koala mm-hmm. bears and, and whatnot. So with he, his good friend, the Gooch? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was actually able to generate 
a lot of public uh, sentiment through through uh, images that he had taken of, of these scores and scores of dead fish to Ooh. get people to realize that you know whales are just these mighty beautiful creatures you know they could smash a concrete wall even if they wanted to but they don't <laughs> um, wait 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 cory cory yeah fish can't smash anything i know but whales can so oh that's right yeah if, if ferdy flynn man of action has taught us nothing it's, it's, <laughs> it's that fish can't smash walls but whales can so as of March 1st of 1970, the, the U.S. boycotted or ended their commercial uh, whale hunting. And, and that's due in yeah. large part to, uh, to Wong's uh, activism and, and all those, those uh, photographs of the dead fish. Well done. It's funny because today's adventure ins- did indeed inspire a number of things that Wong did in March of 1970, which is the one that I went with as well. Uh, we've discussed before uh, Wong's interest in science and technological advancements and the pursuits thereof. And he secured himself passage on the first Concorde flight that uh, went supersonic and broke the speed barrier. He decided to go visit his old friend, the San Diego chicken, who he had created using his magic to make a hybrid human chicken. Right. And he was feeling responsible for that. And so he decided to travel on this Concorde jet flight and he maybe used his magic to reroute it a little bit to get to San Francisco. But much like today's adventure, the combination of this technologically advanced flight and Wong's magic made for some unfortunate time travel and sent Wong back five years before he had invented the San Diego chicken. But it did bring him to San Diego. And so he decided to enjoy the first ever San Diego comic book convention, which happened in March of 1970. And as was established in this very issue, Marvel comics exist within the Marvel universe, so he got to meet some of his favorite creators that may have been writing about his very exploits right then. It was a real mind bender for him, but he had a pretty good time. And then he ended up doing some different magic and uh, probably tried on a different magic science hat that he found and got teleported back to 1975, hung out with his chicken friend and checked out the 1975 comic book convention as well. Wow. And that was Wong's time that was in fact a Wong time coming. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Likewise. Well, I think this has gone pretty well. We'll see how the uh, the final product turns out. But it was a lovely time chatting with you. Thank you for making time for us this morning, Corey, in your Singapore adventure. No problem. Hey, yes. are you going to have a Singapore sling while you're there? Yes. Is that I, a drink that is popular there? I don't know of its popularity. I, di- I did see one on the menu. I actually attempted to order one last night and the the server uh pointed me to a variation of the cocktail that was being made in honor of the uh chinese new year coming up on the 16th Um, that was also a gin-based cocktail um with uh, blood orange and uh, lime juice and lemon juice in it and some sugar it was it was very tasty yes i I think that counts but yeah you should uh maybe try a traditional one if you get the chance i intend to yep that's on my list of of things to do today cool so, yeah. Well, yeah, it was uh, it was awesome talking to you, and thanks for making the time. And Lisa and I are actually going on vacation, so next week and the week after, we will not be posting episodes, but we will be back in a few weeks uh, with an episode pertaining to the second book in the 
Tales of the Teen Titans miniseries. It will be focusing on Raven. And I hope you listeners will join us for that. And then we will be back a week after that with Defenders number 26. Oh, and also a brief note. Somebody pointed out to me that there is apparently some kind of a very good sale on digital comics right now that I think cover the issues that we are dealing with in Defenders. So from here on out, the Defenders run, I think that's something like the equivalent of the next trade paperback is something like three bucks right now. So if you wanted to read along with us, I think that is something that is now perhaps more economically feasible to do than it had been in the past. So, you know, do that if you feel like. One other programming note, I had said on some social media recently that the episodes that I had recorded a couple of years ago for Traveling Through the Bronze Age, in which I did a podcast for every day of February for Black History Month, focusing on a different Black comic book hero who debuted in the Silver or Bronze Age, were still up. And apparently some of them are not. There are some issues with the server. So the first 10 of them are not posted. I'm going to post all of those Black History Month episodes that I did in 2016. I'm going to post those for free on our Patreon site. Uh, And so if you're a Patreon donor, you can get them. But even if you're not a Patreon donor, if you want to go to the site, you can listen to them there. I think that's how that'll work. So yeah, you can do that too. So thanks for joining us, listeners. And until until the next time, Humando and Earthy ride again. (laughs) This is Hub saying... Bark! And this is Earthy saying, get back and water dumb fish. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Yeah, thanks. And they knew it. Okay. I am okay. Re- you ready for the clap? Yep. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> That's a funny <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. I'm going to count backwards from three and then we'll clap. Yep. Ready? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one. Um, this drink is pretty good. I bet it is. I wish I had one. I'm sorry. I can't email you one. No. But when you get back, we'll have many, many drinks. And our podcast will be much longer and make much less sense. (laughs) That's what the people like.